Uh, this is a particularly challenging uh, text. So let's just get right to it. Um, can I ask you to please to stand uh, one more time as we read from God's inerrant word and listen intently together to it? But before we do that, let's, let's pray one more time that the Holy Spirit would illumine our hearts and minds. Without the Holy Spirit, without God coming and speaking to us through his word, we might as well be reading the phone book today. So let's ask God for his help. Lord, we uh, admit to you that um, without you, we are capable of nothing. In fact, we're capable of worse than nothing. Lord, left to our own devices, we will sin, we will twist your word, we will make it um, say something that it doesn't say to benefit us and to glorify ourselves in front of other people and and to amass power for our own privileges, Lord. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to know that and see that so that we might rely on you and in humble hearts call your Holy Spirit upon us to hear your word, not just to hear it, Lord, not just to be men and women who look at your word in the mirror and then walk away from it as if it means nothing, but to take it to heart and by the power of your spirit, act on it, Lord, so that we might glorify you and so that we might be blessed, so that we might enjoy you as we glorify you forever. So, Father, be with us today. Challenge us, I pray, that you would penetrate our hearts. Give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word in Jesus' name. This is John chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. About the middle of the feast... Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. In him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So some of you may have seen, I hate to talk about my kids all the time, but pastors need illustrations from somewhere, right? So some of you may have seen the the great debate that we posted on Facebook where my two daughters, Hannah and Victoria, debated whether monsters were wheelie wheel. If you know Hannah, she's all of her R's or W's, and so we actually caught them in a debate, debating whether or not monsters were wheelie wheel and and Hannah said, no, monsters weren't really real. 
But Toria was trying to insist that monsters were really real. And so we broke out the video camera and actually got to tape them going across this, uh, this, this debate on, on tape. And we put it up on Facebook for everyone to enjoy. Um, and, you know, uh, someday I'll have to tell them the, the outcome of that. But on the one hand, no. Scary monsters in the movies, vampires, werewolves, Godzilla, Mothra, you name it, are not really real. But on the other hand, I'm going to have to tell them someday and sit down with them that the real monsters are people whose moral compass has become so distorted that they no longer know right from wrong and they end up acting in self-exaltation on things that they believe to be right but are really just self-righteousness. And in so doing, they end up stealing and killing, hurting and destroying themselves and other people. There's a, a professor named John Hanna from Dallas Seminary, and he's famous for saying, I used to think that evil men did evil things for evil reasons, and then the more I read history, I discovered that evil men do evil things for what they truly believe are very good reasons. And if you study history, you know that that's just true. There aren't any doctor evils that know they're mo- most, 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 it, it, for the most part. There aren't doctor evils who, who are, know they're doing evil and love it. There are people whose souls have become so twisted by self-righteousness that they believe that what they're doing is truly good, but in fact it is not. It is truly evil. And so it is with this Jerusalem ruling elite who's approached Jesus as he came to teach in the temple. They were so convinced, they were so sure that what they were doing and what they knew about the law and their reading of the Bible was correct They were so sure they were right, they totally missed the point and were now in process to the killing, the murder of the Son of God. Now that's awful to think about, that people could be that, that theologians, religious people could be that. But it speaks to us too. speaks to all of us because we all suffer from self-righteous hearts. It's just part of the fall. I wish I could say that that there was a bright dividing line between good and evil, between right and wrong, but there's not. Evil is the unraveling of good that spreads across culture and civilization and people and lives, and it's on a continuum, and it's everywhere, and it's hard to see. And we as fallen creatures, although we've been renewed and we have Christ's spirit within us, we still have self-righteous hearts and we still fall prey to knowing, knowing that's true, knowing it's right, and, and and in knowing, we risk the possibility that we've got it wrong and are doing harm rather than good. And so, here's the big lesson from this passage today, the big idea, the thesis, the one big idea that John wants to get across to us, and that is that because a self-righteous heart turns us into monsters, we need to constantly check ourselves against the gospel. 
Because a self-righteous heart turns us into monsters, we need to constantly check ourselves against the gospel. And we'll break that down one little piece at a time. First, the self-righteous heart. Um, let me give you a quick lesson in church history to start this point off. There's a guy named William Miller who in the 1800s started an apocalyptic cult out of the uh, northeast section of the country and he believed that the apocalypse, the coming of Christ, was going to happen in March of 1944. And so these Millerites, they all dressed up in white clothing and they climbed up the trees in their village and they waited for the Lord to come and when the Lord didn't show up, they all climbed back down the trees and went home and regrouped and they redid the math, and they were like, wait, we were wrong? This sounds familiar. It's October of 1944. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? We just keep doing this over and over and over again. So they got their white clothes back on. They went outside. They climbed the trees again. They waited for the Lord. Sun came up. Sun came down. Nothing happened. They went back home, and, uh, and they regrouped again, and they became eventually what we now know as the Seventh-day Adventists. Out of the Seventh-day Adventists split out another branch uh, or another group called the Davidians in the 1950 that had some different ideas about their religion. And then out of that group, there was another splinter group that came out and was eventually led by a a man named Vernon Howell, who eventually changed his name to David Koresh as he led what was then called the Branch Davidians. And we all know the end of that story awful story. But you can imagine how the religious elite of the day were looking at David Koresh, who was a self-taught, self-proclaimed Messiah figure, and they were saying, you've never gone to any of our schools, you've never gone to any of our seminaries, we don't, you have never been trained, uh, you are, uh, your teachings are up front, you, there's nothing to back them up, and so therefore they thought he was dangerous and that he was leading people astray. And of course that turned out to be true. Why do I tell you that story? Because it helps us get a grip on the mind of the ruling religious elite in Jerusalem. When they looked at Jesus, they saw the same thing. How did they do that? How did they see that? Let's read quickly verses 19, or I'm sorry, verses 14 through 17. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, "Uh, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. In order to understand what this is saying, let me give you some background. The rabbinic system of the day, the rabbinic theology establishment in Jerusalem in order to be a rabbi who was, tr- who was able to teach, you had to be trained by another known rabbi and therefore have his authority. And you also, when you went to teach, you didn't teach and quote scripture, you teached by quoting other prominent rabbis, i.e., look, other, other authorities think the same thing, and therefore that gave you authority, that gave you standing in the religious community, and therefore you were authorized to teach. So when Jesus shows up in the temple and starts teaching, when they say to him, 
How is it this man has learning when he has never studied? They're, they're not amazed. They're not saying, wow, how does he know so much without ever having a teacher? They're, they're astonished. They're, they are um, upset about his presumption. Who do you think you are to come into the temple and preach when you've never studied under an authoritative rabbi? Who are you? And what do you think you're doing? And then on top of that, uh, he would only, uh, you know, he would speak, and instead of saying, uh, you know, Gamaliel says, or Hillel says, or Shammai says, he would say, but I say to you, and people, people just lost their minds. What are you talking about? In every way, shape, and form to these religious elites who thought they absolutely knew the system, Jesus was in their minds about the same as David Koresh. And on top of that, he was teaching, in, in, in their minds, teaching error. He was causing people, and he himself was working on the Sabbath, therefore breaking the Sabbath, And teaching people error. And Jesus challenges them on this. This is how he challenges them. Verse 17, when he says, where he says, My teaching is not mine, but his whom sent me. If anyone's will is to do the will of God, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether it is whether I am speaking on my own authority. What he's saying is, no, I don't have an authoritative rabbi that has taught me, and no, I am not citing other authoritative rabbis. He's not making a mystical statement here, as a, i.e., if you meditate on the will of God, that you will automatically be downloaded the, not, the true will and knowledge of God outside of God's word. No, he's saying, test what I'm saying against what you know to be true. The written word of God, the revealed scripture that you all have, that we all go off of. Test what I'm saying to you, whether or not it's true. Whether, he's saying, I admit I am not in line with what your system says. But rather than testing me against your system, test me against the word of God. Whoops. Let's... Let's turn the volume down. A couple of beeps is better than an hour and 15 minute long sermon, I Amen. Okay. <laughs> he is saying, test what I teach against the word of God rather against your system. He's challenging them to do that. And so, the big controversy here, the challenge, the, the thing that's happening is He's saying, if any, when he says that, he says, if anybody has a real will to know God's will and to do it, you will be able to go to the scriptures and test what I'm saying against them and know it's true. But you won't do it. Why? He's challenging them. You won't do that. Why is it? And he tells us in verse 18. Verse 18, he says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. That first line, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Does that, do you remember in, in John chapter 5 where he said almost the same thing? In John chapter 5, he said this of the Pharisees. He said, how can you believe 
When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. What he said to them in chapter 5, that the reason you can't believe in me, the reason you don't know me or know who I'm in, and in the next chapter he's going to say, the reason you don't know God is because you are so concerned with glorifying yourself and exalting yourself and getting the praise of men that that is your driving force and your driving ambition and you're not willing to give it up. The root cause of our unbelief, and this goes for the unbeliever and for the believer in Christ, right? Faith is, faith is a persevering faith up and down, and it perseveres, but our faith is characterized by how we exalt God over self. And the reason, the root cause of our unbelief, of everyone's unbelief, is our brutal addiction to human praise, to self-exaltation, and to pride. That's what he's saying to them. And this is so important. This is so important for us to think about because to the exact extent that our faith is clouded by this self-exaltation is the exact extent to which we will not be able to know God, even in our walk. Uh, It's what causes so many different groups to redefine Jesus to redefine who Jesus is in such a way that allows them, allows us to continue in the certain prideful behavior that we want. What do we think we have to have to be okay? What do I think I have to have in order to look good in front of other people? To What do I have to have that I know is against God's will? And so I redefine Jesus into a different Jesus of my imagination It's like, it's like craft Jesus, right? Custom made to order. <laughs> I'd like a uh, Jesus who doesn't pay too much attention in my personal life. I would like a Jesus who is behind me in my crusading for righteousness. I want a Jesus who understands that I need to talk about these people for their own good. Um, It's what causes us to be experts in the Bible and blind to our own sin. Ouch, Presbyterians. You know that theological knowledge is not um, uh, an indicator of spiritual maturity. It's not. I mean, my professor, one of our professors, Joel Kim, his mother was an Arminian, and, and she was. And he said, if I gave her a test on justification, she would fail. But she went through a, an enemy occupation in her home country, and she went through atrocities and loved, ended up loving and forgiving people who did awful things to her and her family in a, way, in a Christian way that blew his mind. That's Christian maturity. 
It's what, here, get ready, ready? It's what causes us to have that stubborn desire to be right. Even past the point in the argument when you realize you're wrong. You know what I'm talking about? Can I get an amen? So here, I'm preparing this sermon, right? Good friend of mine getting into this conversation about a concern that she has. And I'm sitting there, I'm trying to be patient, we're listening, and we're talking, and, um, and, 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 and about 30, 30 minutes in, I realized, man, to, to, to make a theological point, that I, to, to bring all the theology in that I need to make this point, it's going to take like an hour, I don't have it, and so I just bailed on patience, loving kindness, consideration for my sister, and I, and I, and I played the education card. I basically said, I'm the one with two theological degrees. You're not. Shut up. You're a pastor. <laughs> While I'm preparing this sermon, right? Man, that's the kind of stuff that leaves a mark and, and then God you know, brings back to your mind when you're actually writing the outline. <laughs> Don't ever preach because God will cycle you through the sins you're going to pray for that week. In some way, shape, or form. I will never preach on Job. (laughs) And it's what causes us to retaliate when we're hurt. You know that feeling? Somebody hurts you. Somebody bums you out. And you just just feel it like coming up your throat. The, The anger what you want to say, and you're rehearsing it in your mind. You're like having these violent conversations. And I would tell you this, and then I would say that, and then she would say this, and then I would say that, and I would shut her down, right? All of that is because we have self-righteous hearts. The root of all of our pride, the root of all of our unbelief is that level of wicked pride that resides in all of our hearts. And when we act in it, when we act on that pride, the danger is that we blind ourselves to even be able to see truth anymore. And we run the risk of really hurting people that we care about. Because that person's going to be somebody you care about. It's going to be the person close to you, which is going to be your wife, your children, your best friends, your church family. So that's point one, our self-righteous hearts. And if that's true, uh, point two turns us into monsters. Our self-righteous hearts, point one, point two, turns us into monsters. Look at what's happening here in this story. Um, Because Jesus hasn't been authorized by the rabbinic system to teach the rabbinic theology, they reject him as a cultist, and they also accuse him, the giver of the law, of being the one who's breaking the law. Jesus says in verses 7, 19 through 21, here's his response to all that. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. 
Why are you trying to kill me? And the crowd answered him, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. The one work there is the healing of the paralytic at Bethsaida that we talked about a couple, few weeks ago, chapter 5, right? He goes into the temple. It's the modern-day equivalent of uh, Veterans Hospital, Salvation Army, um, UCSD Medical Center rolled into one. All the people who were beyond medical help were laying there waiting for supernatural healing. Uh, and we, we, the story focuses on one man, and that man, that paralytic, is the version, it's, a, it's a representation of us, just paralyzed by our sinful minds and our sinful bodies. And this, he goes to this paralyzed man. He says, do you want to be well? The, the guy says, I can't be well. Just to make sure we understand that this is an impossible situation, Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, get out of here. And the guy immediately gets up and walks out. They thought, uh, that's what they're taught, that's what Jesus says when he says that one work. And he's not saying, again, like at the beginning, when he's, they're not marveling at his amazing learning. They're not marveling that he did this wonder. They're, 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 they're shocked and astonished and offended that he would do something like that on the Sabbath. How could you possibly work on the Sabbath day and jeopardize our nation and the righteousness that we need to achieve for Messiah to come? (laughs) That's what they're telling Jesus. Same, right? Isn't that crazy? (sighs) Isn't that crazy? See, in order to do that kind of thing and to have that level of self-exaltation, what we have to do is bring the law down to earth and make it a manageable thing that we can actually attempt to keep. And the way that we do that is by focusing on the letter of the law, the minutia of it. For example, in the Torah, there's a rule that um, as you... As you, as you um, harvest your fields at the end of harvest. You're not supposed to harvest the outside and you're supposed to not go by twice. You're supposed to leave some there for poor people to come and glean from it so that it was the social net, the, the rescue net of the day. So the people that, that, were, that didn't have the poor that could come and they could glean from your fields and get enough food for them to eat. And so what the, what the religious ruling elite decided was, they said, well, this says harvest of this, 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 and this, but it doesn't say anything about fruit trees or almonds or these other plants, and so therefore, we don't have to do that, and we'll just clean out. We'll grow those plants for, our, for, our, for, our, for monetary, for, to, for, for our riches, and then we'll just take it all. They totally missed the point, right? The law is paradigmatic. It means it gives general theory, and then it gives case study to help you understand all, all cases like that one, the spirit of the law, right? What is the spirit of the law? Can anybody tell me? You, you should be able to get this. Spirit of the law is to love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your paralytic neighbor as yourself. They lost it. So focused on these little minutiae letter of the law that they could keep and then justify themselves with it that they lost it, forgot, totally blinded themselves to the spirit of the law and were keeping the letter of it. And therefore, they distorted the law into a means of self-exaltation. Look at us. Look what we can do. Look how good we are. Which then caused them to think that loving their paralytic neighbor was somehow a sin because Jesus wasn't following the minutiae, little minor letters of the law. And it then caused them to think that they were then justified in murdering the healer. And that's not the definition of a monster. I don't know what it is. You see, they had taken selective portions of the truth and they weaponized it for their own self-glory. And in doing so, they totally missed the spirit of the law. Um, So let's talk about this week, shall we? I think this has been a hard week for everybody. Hard week for us. There's a couple of things going on with us. There's some, a couple of hard things that happened with our, our family this week that was difficult. But in the midst of all that, um, living through the reality of, of uh, the police shootings, and then the retaliation shootings in Dallas. And, um, you know, what one philosopher talked about in 1978, that uh, the, the, the thin veneer of our, of our civilization and the boiling underneath it, uh, volcanoes erupted this week. You know, and it's, the way we talk to each other now is on social media. And um, there was a ton of reflecting a ton of uncertainty, a lot of fear, a lot of anger. Um, and on, I think Thursday, we were looking through social media. It was just post after post after post after post. Nothing but about the, about the shooting of these black men and then the Dallas shootings afterwards. It's a hard week, a hard week for us as a nation hard week for us as Christians. And um, you know, I hate to say this, but I was I was super discouraged by the response of many um, in our tribe, even people that I know and respect, some of the responses that I, I was seeing on social media. Um, and embarrassed by it too, embarrassed because I came, it, it, it hit me like a ton of bricks that just months prior I was making the same kind of posts. You know what I'm talking about. 
just running to the evidence on to, to say that it's this or it's that or to blame or to assign blame. Uh, um, making it about us. And I know that there's an element of truth to that, but also just refusing to recognize the suffering of our brothers and sisters in the black community. And I mean embarrassed by that. I've got some apologies to make. In my zeal to be all about us, um, I did not uh, consider the pain and the suffering that friends of mine were going through. You know, Anissa, we're talking about it today and she, or the other day. And she said, you know, and the, question, the question I want to put to us, to all of us, is, is this. Are we so bent on being right, morally and politically, that we can't slow down for just a minute and mourn with those who mourn? Can we put aside our political analysis charts? Can we put aside our evidence that proves our pet political theories and just shut up and listen to the pain that people that we care about and that we love are going through? Can we do that? If you have some of those posts on your Facebook page, would you go home and take them down? We're the church. I mean, what we've been given in the gospel, why do we take it so lightly? Why do I take it so lightly? Why is it when things like this come up, my first response is, prove my political point or be right rather than suffer with? You know, I'm reading this book right now called At the Hands of Persons Unknown. It's a thick book. It's a book about the history of lynchings in America, which is something that is in the collective memory of the grandparents and great-grandparents of our friends. That's a reality, a cultural reality that we don't think about, we don't know about, but a whole group, a whole portion of our church, they do. I want to read you something now, something I'm ashamed of, and something that I'm proud of. Many of you know we're Presbyterians, and we have a wide range of church government. We're not an independent church. We're accountable to all the churches in Southern California, and then each of our, each of our churches are presbyteries. That area are all accountable to the General Assembly, to the national church, so that we, um, it's very difficult for PCA pastors to fly out in left field without getting checked. It's a good thing. But part of that process uh, is listening and, 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 and making resolutions as a church. And this is a resolution that our church passed at our General Assembly last month. I'm going to just read it. Therefore, be it resolved that the 44th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent 
of corporate and historical sins, including those committed during the civil rights era and continuing racial sins of ourselves and our fathers, such as the segregation of worshipers by race, the exclusion of persons from church membership on the basis of race, the exclusion of churches or elders from membership in the presbyteries on the basis of race, the teaching that the Bible sanctions racial segregation and discourages interracial marriage, the participation in and defense of white supremacist organizations, and the failure to live out the gospel imperative that love does no wrong to a neighbor. Be it further resolved that this General Assembly does recognize, confess, condemn, and repent of past failures to love brothers and sisters from the minority cultures in accordance with what the gospel requires, as well as failures to lovingly confront our brothers and sisters concerning racial sins and personal bigotry, and failing to learn to do good, seek justice, and correct oppression. Now I'm ashamed of that because that's our church that did those things. And that's not in the 1800s. That's during the civil rights era. Our church fathers, our Presbyterian churches, did all those things. But I'm encouraged by it and I'm proud of it because the church came out and admitted it and and repented and confessed. I mean, isn't that really what it's all about? Maybe it should have come 30, 40 years ago and it should have, but at least we can say our church stood up for what was right and we confessed our sins in the most blatant, non-sweep-it-under-the-rug, public kind of way. And now we want to move forward in seeking that kind of justice and that kind of reconciliation. So I'm proud of the PCA for that. So let's try and keep this in mind. The gospel is about self-humiliation and God-exaltation. It's about self-humiliation and God-exaltation. And when we get that messed up or twisted, bad things happen. So if the self-righteous heart turns us into monsters, what do we need to do? We need to constantly check ourselves against the gospel. Now the great irony here is that as these religious elite are accusing Jesus their self-exalting blindness, they don't even realize that Jesus is the Sabbath keeper and that they are the Sabbath breakers. Listen to verse 22, 23 again. Moses gave you circumcision. That is from Moses. That it, that, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses might not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Here's the background on that. The Torah commanded circumcision to be done on the eighth day. And it was so important that even when someone was born and that circumcision was scheduled for a a Sabbath, i.e. somebody was born on Friday, the circumcision... Uh, 
was more important as the sign and seal of the covenant. It took precedence over the Sabbath day as a, way, uh, as, as a sign and seal of God's hesed, God's covenant faithfulness and love that added wholeness to that person and brought them into the community. And so Jesus is saying, hey, check it out. Are you trying to tell me, let me see if I got this straight. You're trying to tell me that um, you allow circumcision on the Sabbath, which is a way of making someone whole, bringing them into the covenant, an act of God's has said love displayed, and that somehow I, when I make a whole man's body whole, I'm breaking the Sabbath. Can you explain that to me? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. But it's even bigger than that, really. Remember when we were talking about the paralytic, he was a representative of us. And that healing in, the, in, the, in, in Bethsaida was a picture of what the Sabbath truly represented. It wasn't just about healing a man, but it was about, it, it was a picture of what the real Sabbath rest of God was, which is God's eternal rest in the eternal now, in the heavenly places where we will enter. And so that healing of the man, the healing of his body represented resurrection, power. And the healing of his soul, the reconciliation with God and the forgiveness of sins represented his, his restoration and reconciliation with God. It was a picture of what the Sabbath rest totally exemplified, right? Jesus has come to deliver us from our sin-infected minds and bodies but why circumcision? Why is circumcision the, the reason he gives or the example he gives to show them how they're not consistent with the law? Do you remember um, back in John 1.17, it says this, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That grace and truth means God's has said faithful covenant love. And what it's saying is that the law came through Moses, the shadow, the foreshadowing, the picture of everything that Christ was going to do was given by Moses in the law, but Christ came and fulfilled it in reality. Now listen to this verse in Colossians 2.11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision, this is Paul speaking, the official apostolic interpretation of circumcision. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, does that mean the circumcision of when he was eight days old? No. We know for a fact that that meant the cross. The circumcision that Christ underwent for us was the cross. The blood ritual of circumcision always pointed forward to the greater blood sacrifice of Jesus' death on the cross. So that that circumcision that they performed on the Sabbath that they thought was okay, it wasn't just a cutting of the flesh, it was a sign that pointed forward to something greater. It was a blood ritual that pointed forward to the ultimate shedding of blood for our sin, for our sin-infected minds, and our sin-infected bodies. It was a symbol of the solution to the very problem that would lead them to murder the Son of God, which he willingly went to, to save the men, including us, who murdered him. 
None of you keep the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Those are Jesus' words to us. Jesus speaks to us through the power of his spirit, and he convicts us with that. We all have self-righteous hearts. We are all capable of being monsters. We need to constantly be checking ourselves against the gospel. To judge not by appearances, but to judge with righteous judgment. And to do it from hearts that know who we are and know what we're capable of. But to not sit in despair there, but to then take that and focus on Jesus. Hard focus on Christ, like Charlie said in the prayer today. Hard focus on that front side of Jesus (laughs) and what he's done for us and what we possess in him so that we can stop this insanity of trying to protect our rightness and in self-humiliation seek to exalt God. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, this has been a tough week. Um, and a convicting week, Lord, but ultimately it's been a good, a good week because you have showed us our sins and it's better to know our sins and to grieve them than to be unconsciously sinning against the people we love and care about. And by bringing that to mind, you have caused us to see even in greater detail the beauty of the gospel. We love you, Jesus. We would be in... We would be so lost without you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here whose unbelief has caused them to self-exalt themselves and shut them off from knowing you that today would be the day of their salvation. And for the rest of us, Lord, to the exact extent that we, in unbelief, exalt ourselves, I pray that this would be a day of change and repentance for us as a church, here at Res Pres, throughout the churches. And that you would equip us to, in the beauty of the gospel, to go out and offer the only hope there is. And as we do that, we do it in great hope and expectation, knowing that you will come and get us and take us home and everything is going to be okay. So we love you, Lord. And we praise your name. Amen.